Hey, Lulav. Yeah, Jess? Did you know there is a line in the book of Psalms okay. where David says, Tovli Torat, Piach Me'alpe Zahav Vachasef. And I prefer to read this one to you <laughs> as Tovli Torat Picha Me Alpe Zahav Ukasef, because I think that's the feminine way to read that line. Oh, fun. And it means Torah of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver coins. Yo, okay. <laughs> okay. How'd you find that one? Svara sent it to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Svara. <laughs> yeah. Enabling gay pickup lines. (laughs) Thank you for making that the energy we start the podcast off on. (laughs) I'm so glad. Anyway, Lulav, what other cool and queer and Jewish things have you been doing this week? Well, recently I got, I think, a notification or maybe I was just looking at my list on Netflix. But basically, Grey's Anatomy season 16 went up on Netflix. And I was like, season 16? I didn't even watch 15. So of course, I spent like three or four days just watching both seasons of Grey's Anatomy because I love one soap. (laughs) And spoilers for Grey's Anatomy for the next, like, 60 seconds, probably. But there's a character named Levi Schmidt, and he is gay. He's also the first, like, Jewish main cast character. Ooh. And he has a great uncle, Saul, who, like, dies when he comes out to him. But it turns out that the reason he died is that... Saul was also gay and was just so happy and also dying. That's horrifying, but also, I guess, charming. Yeah. So, like, there are usually two or three relationships that the storyline focuses on in a season. And Levi's relationship with his boyfriend is the first gay male relationship that's been featured in Grey's Anatomy. So there's stuff about, like, variable levels of coming out and gay experience. And the most queer and Jewish thing for me was we've always been here. And the, like, one Jew in the main cast of this show is gay. Yeah. Which is validating. Yeah. (laughs) But also, like... Season 16 has him coming into his Judaism because he didn't grow up like religiously Jewish, just really culturally Jewish. Mm. But in going through the death of his great uncle, he becomes more observant. There are times during the season when he just like sings liturgical songs that he learned growing up. They're in Hebrew and it's beautiful and Just like the whole coming into one's own Judaism over the course of growing up is pretty cool. And I love it. That's so sweet. (laughs) Do you have any opinions about either Grey's Anatomy or the fact that I have watched 16 seasons of this show, sometimes multiple times? Uh, Well, I have very little opinion about Grey's Anatomy. I don't think I've ever watched more than an episode or two sort of in the background of a thing. Okay. Is that the one that takes place in Seattle or is that the other long-running medical show? Okay, yeah. Yes. (laughs) That was the reason that I wanted to bring it on the podcast that I had since forgotten. (laughs) 
yeah, so love that. I have very little opinion about Grey's Anatomy. I worry slightly for your health if you have binged this show in the last, like, couple weeks since we've talked about it. But, you know, that's fine. Yeah, I just live like this. Oh. Yeah, so was that all the stuff that you wanted to talk about, cool, queer, and Jewish-wise? Well, so I also had a thing this week. Oh, good. Which is just that I had my first visit this week with someone who I got to hang out with in person who like doesn't live in my house (laughs) that I've had for the last two months. My bio dad, Louis, came for like a socially distant visit in the backyard. And that was super lovely. He came once during the week and hung out in the backyard. And the second time he brought the woman he's been seeing and he's living with because the like wasn't going to be more dangerous to have two of them. Yeah. I got to meet her in person. And I don't know, just one, it was really lovely to get to see him because he's family and also good to just kind of see any other humans in person, you know? So there are only four humans in the entire world. Yeah, you know, so that was really nice. And just thinking about it in terms of like families can look in all sorts of ways. And like he was talking to me about plans for rabbinical school. And like we were talking about some things that are Jewish and some things that are secular. And it was just like, this is what my family is like, and I love them. Yeah, so. that's really good. Want to get this party started? Yeah. One, two, three, four. Welcome to Kosher Queers, a podcast with at least two Jews and generally more than three opinions. Each week, we bring you queer takes on Torah. They're Jazz. And she's Lulav. And we're here to joke about Judaism and talk Tanakh together. Today, our Hruta is learning Shalach. There was so many chus. <laughs> or potentially Shalach Lecha, depending on what you call this Parsha. How dare you? That's so reform? Are you accusing me of being too revisionist with the (laughs) translation? Yeah. Yes, because as we all know, I always stick to the orthodox opinion on things. You couldn't even keep a straight face through that. (laughs) I wasn't even present to see that. No, you can hear it, though. (laughs) Yeah. So we were very confused about this because the JPS says shalach but the thing that I had written down when we were making the schedule for this podcast, said shalach. And so... So we went and looked at a bunch of different places to see what they all said. A bunch. And it seems to be that Orthodox sources have it as shalach, and Reform and Conservative sources have it as shalach lecha. But who knows? Which I think is very funny, because... One might expect conservative sources to say shalach, and this <laughs> makes it feel to me like because the conservative movement split off from the reform movement and not actually from the orthodox movement, maybe yeah. they just like picked this up from the reform movement and then just like never got rid of it. Wonderful. So Jazz, what does shalach lecha or just shalach mean? Send. Our first verse is the verse that we have that starts a million things that goes, <laughs> Vayedaber Hashem el Moshe lemor. But the second verse starts with, 
shalach lecha anashim, like send out men or people. And those are going to be our scouts who dominate the narrative for this Parsha. So I'm going to send you out. How much time would you like to be wandering in Canaan getting the brief idea of this Parsha? Okay, I didn't time it ahead of time, but it looks like an imposing block of text. So give me 60 seconds. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Twelve Boy Scouts went out to check the promised land and had some good fruit there. They were there for 40 days, but when they came back, 10 of them said, we can't go to the land because we were so impressed by how big and strong and muscly those men were that we didn't know what to do with these strange feelings and we got scared. And anyway, nope, we can never go back there. (laughs) And everybody cried and wanted to die. And God got impatient and said to Moshe, what is up with our people? Why are they like this? And Moshe said, you got to have patience. Also, even though they're saying they want to die, you can't actually kill them all. It'll look bad. So God said, okay, but you'll be wandering in the desert for 40 years. Only your children will make it in. Of the 12, Joshua and Caleb were fine, but the ones who'd spread negativity died of plague. And people were like, uh, okay, we'll go into the land right now. And Moshe was like, that's not going to work, guys. And it did not work. So God gives some more instructions about how they'll give sacrifices when they've done something wrong. Uh, once they eventually get to Eretz Israel, and then clarify via killing a dude that's doing something on sh- Shabbat. Uh, and doing something on accident is different than doing something on purpose. And finally... Yarn reminds you to be a good person. Yeah, Yarn reminds you to be a good person. That was a much briefer (laughs) summary of the last paragraph than I thought you were going to have. Why? I don't know. We were just talking very animatedly about Tzitzit when we were getting ready to record. I love Tzitzit. It is, however, kind of a footnote to this Parsha. Sure is. (laughs) Do you want to talk about the leg of this Parsha? The what? You said footnote. So we're getting the leg notes. Okay. Cause, cause the leg is... I don't think eh? that's how that works. Eh? <laughs> a footnote to a body of text is very explicitly connected to the body of text, not the leg of text. Okay, fine. Um, The head, no. Give us the long summary, Jeff. <laughs> Okay, so God speaks to Moshe and says, you got to send out scouts to the land of Canaan, and you'll send one representative from each of the 12 ancestral houses, I think not including the Levites, Mm -hmm. which is a answer to our question from a while back of like, are the Levites included in the 12? They are not. They are not included in the 12. There's one person from each tribe. And I didn't mention this in the summary, but we get a cute name change. (laughs) There's a boy whose name is Hoshea Ben Nun, Mm -hmm. and it gets changed to Yehoshua Ben Nun, which means they sort of just tack on a Yud at the front. <laughs> and in so doing, now there's like a Yud Hey instead of just a Hey. And the Yud Hey is like a variation on God's name. So it indicates mm. that he's special. Okay. So I just want to butt in here. Haven't we had Yehoshua, son of Nun, talking in several parshot across the entire Torah? I don't remember. But didn't we have him last parsha coming into Moshe to be like, hey, somebody is prophesying? That's what I'm saying. Oh, wait, no, that was the kid. And then Yehoshua had a more adamant reaction about how they should be locked up. Because every time we see Yehoshua, it's him being an ark. But it definitely did call him Yehoshua Ben Nun 
in the last Parsha when he goes up and says, hey, Moshe, other people are prophesying and I don't think they should be doing that. So like that's one Parsha where he showed up. Mm -hmm. There's the one where they use... Moshe as a human mascot during a battle (laughs) and they're like lifting his arms and stuff and Yehoshua is either one of the guys who holds the arms or one of the guys in command of the fighters. I don't remember. We could probably go back and check. I wonder then if this is like, here's a formal list of all their names. Mm -hmm. But sometime in the past, Moshe has changed one of these guys' names. Okay. So here were their original names, but this one has been updated since the list was originally made. Can I give my take? Yes, please. So there was this list, right? But just as Yehoshua kind of shows up in several parshot with no warning, they were like, hey, that name's kind of like Yehoshua. Let's have that be him. That's him now. (laughs) I have a slightly more cynical take. Okay. You know how sometimes when they're like cis people and they're writing a trans character (laughs) and they're like, well, when people change their name, they do exactly the same version of their name like we had a character who i've decided to name timothy and her name is now jimathina or whatever i mean as we all know my dead name is lewis (laughs) it's not i'm not telling you what it is anyway it reminds me of that sounds about right (laughs) you know what i mean like anyway then what does moshe say Then Moshe's like, so go and check out the land and see what kind of place it is. Like, what are the people there like? And is there a lot of them? What's the countryside like in terms of ability to farm? Do the towns have walls or are they open? What kind of soil is there? Are there woods? And bring back some fruit so we can all try it. And this seems to be an open recognition of the fact that people live here, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Want to say something more about that or want to wait on that one? I'm going to wait a little bit until we see exactly the extent of civilization that's already here. Okay. So yeah, what do they find? They went up and scouted. They go into the Negev, which is a desert, but then they go to Hebron, which is a town, and there's a bunch of groups of people there. It notes actually that maybe it wasn't such a desert in the same time. But anyway, Hebron is an old town and there's grapes growing and there's all of these different groups of people living there and they cut some grapes and try them and they're delicious. And big, right? Because the JPS has that they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, but it had to be born on a carrying frame by two of them. Yeah. And also have some pomegranates and figs. Mm-hmm. And they name the place Eshkol, like grape. <laughs> and then after 40 days, 40 being kind of an important number and maybe rounded, but they return to where the rest of the Israelites are. Mm-hmm. And they say really good fruits, excellent farming, but there are powerful people there, big cities with walls. And here are the like five different groups of people who all live here Mm -hmm. in the cities and along the river and sea. And so they're going into this scouting mission, knowing that the ultimate aim is to displace everybody from this land and claim it as their own. And what they see is that the cities are fortified and very large and the people who inhabit it are powerful. Like there's civilization here. People live here. And it's just atrocious that the thrust of this story is that they're going to be displaced and that's cool. Yes. I 
So I'm thinking about it partially because my instinct is to think about like, is there a more generous way to read a text? (laughs) This one in particular, because I am invested in finding good things in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering also, because as we go on, we definitely find there's people here and they say the land is there and the cities are fortified. There was a commentary that was like one of the distinctions between a walled city and a peaceful city. And one of the reasons they might be asked about it is that it's a question of indicating whether the people are warlike or peaceful. That if they're fortified, then they're probably a warlike people. And if they're peaceful, then they probably won't have walls in the same way that that's sort of what walls are for now also. Like if we're building a wall on the southern border, it's because we're not being friendly and peaceful, you know? I feel like having a wall around a city means that you have to be less bellicose about defending it. Well, the rabbis thought that it was an indicator that they're fighting, Mm -hmm. that it is specifically like a fighting city as opposed to one that's at peace with its neighbors. Mm -hmm. But so anyway, the thing that I was thinking about was when Caleb is like, well, maybe we should still go up anyway. And the rest of the scouts are like, we can't go up. We wouldn't be able to win in an attack and they would kill us. Mm -hmm. They said, we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. (laughs) And so we must have looked to them. And the whole community breaks out weeping. And they're like, it would have been better if we died in Egypt or better if we might die in the wilderness than that we go into this land and die there. And like, I recognize that it is maybe in some ways easy to look at this as just like, a conquering and colonial story. But it feels to me also like in this particular instance, these people aren't warriors. They're not trained armies. Mm -hmm. They just got out of slavery like a year ago. And that's what they've been doing for their whole life. They're arguably refugees trying to find a place to live. And they're like, oh, no, they're warlike and we can't go there. Yeah. So an interpretation that I want to bring I don't know that this is intended by the text, Mm -hmm. but talking about how everybody's big and warlike and they can totally mess you up Mm -hmm. reminds me of the slander that American settlers used against the native peoples of America Mm. about how they'd scalp you and they're all warlike. And as we see pretty soon, the people who say that are deeply afflicted. So like overstating the bellicosity and danger of your neighbors, you can read here is a bad thing. Mm, Yes. Normally, though, in that scenario that you're saying Mm -hmm. that was used as an excuse to attack people and here when they believe that the people are strong and fierce, they're using it to say we shouldn't go there at all. Right. And so that's why I say it's maybe not at all intended by the text Mm. because you have to be having a reading of this being a scenario where they're not at this point intending to displace the people who already live there. So rather than this being like a should we fight them or not it's a who lives here Mm, yeah i got stuck a little bit so not stuck but i was thinking about this section before we started recording Mm -hmm. and in particular on this we seemed like grasshoppers bit (laughs) and i was wondering about it's unusual to have a comparison to grasshoppers or bugs as something small regarding other people. Like I found a comparison in Isaiah where people are compared to grasshoppers beneath God. Mm-hmm. But comparing yourself to other people like that is like a out of proportion response. Yeah, I mean, the preceding stuff is that the Anakites they're talking about are like Nephilim. 
mm-hmm. are descended from these giant dudes who roamed the earth early on. Yeah, but the Nephilim are angelic, practically. Mm. Like, this is almost treating other humans like gods. Oh, okay. So you're saying that this maybe has something to do with idolatry? I do. Yeah. Okay. And also a sort of devaluing of their own selves and lives. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of different types of queer theorists or activist thinkers in terms of when they talk about what does our beautiful future hold? Like Mm. they're thinking of themselves as like completely insignificant. You know, when I think of what people talk about as like, how do we dream a better future that we want to bring into existence? Mm -hmm. You don't super do it by thinking of yourself as something so insignificant that you can be crushed underfoot by people who are opposed to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Your beautiful and radical liberatory dreaming has to imagine yourself as like part of a force that can change things, not something so insignificant that like the capitalist system will grind you underfoot. Yeah. Because then the whole community is like, we would like to die because this is terrible instead of being (laughs) like, well, we should figure something out. Mm -hmm. So the removal of hope is a bad thing here also? I think so. And explicitly also Moshe and God then have to respond to a community of people saying we want to die and are having difficulty with that. And that was resonant for me. Yeah. Like what happens when like the world is hard and you have that kind of reaction to it. (laughs) Yeah. Can you talk about how the leaders of the community respond to this despondency? I can. May I tell you first the reference that I was checking for this that it reminded me of? Sure. I don't have the book here because it's back in New York, but have you ever read I Hope We Choose Love? It's by Kai Chang Tom. No, I haven't, but that sounds really familiar. It maybe just came out a couple of years ago. I really resonated a lot with it. It's called I Hope We Choose Love, A Trans Girl's Notes from the End of the World. Oh. And she has a chapter in it. And I think the thesis of this chapter is about the trans women she knows who have died by suicide and she was saying our communities don't do a good job of like holding on to people that we have this thing about like it's respecting people's boundaries and some way to say okay if you want to die then go do it and she's like that's not a moral thing to do you can't let people do that like that Hmm. sometimes people can't articulate that they want help and want a better life and so the thing Mm. they say is just i want to die and her example is like if a child is struggling and says i'm gonna run away the more moral thing to do is say like yes you always have a home to come back to and also say like i'll come find you on the streets because you need to still have a way to live and survive yeah the first response to apocalyptic thinking is to see if you can make the material circumstances better yes rather than giving into the apocalypticism yeah also i thought that kai cheng tom sounded familiar and it is because tova was reading fierce femmes in Natal liars a dangerous trans girl's confabulous memoir a couple years ago i haven't read that one yet so yeah i should probably look at her work it's very good anyway but that's what i was thinking about when this whole community was being like oh no what are we gonna do (laughs) yeah i hope we choose love yeah also she's exactly one month older than me oh my god that's wild Next in the narrative, mm-hmm. Moshe and Aharon fall on their faces. They are like really upset, I think, by this reaction. And then Joshua and Caleb, um, I don't know if we've had it explicit in the narrative up to this point, but like Joshua is Moshe's chosen successor and Caleb is Miriam's husband. Sorry, what? <laughs> Caleb is Miriam's husband. 
When did that happen? I, I, I don't remember. This is just a thing that I know. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Anyways, they had also been two of the scouts, and they are like, it's a good land. Like, we could do well there if you continue to follow God. They do say an upsetting thing about the people of the country are our prey. Mm-hmm. I feel like that one specifically is coming from Yehoshua because it tracks with, like, everything else that he has said. <laughs> yeah, and the community does not react well to this. They threaten to pelt them with stones. <laughs> And God appears and is like, break Break it up, break it up. And then God says to Moshe, the people don't trust me. And I feel like I've shown up for them a lot of times. Maybe I should just strike them down like they asked for a minute earlier and start over. And Moshe talks God down from this plan. (laughs) Do you have any questions about this? Not particularly. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Caleb, son of Jephunneh, mm-hmm. and apparently his name is either related to dog, Caleb, <laughs> uh-huh. or it is related to whole heart, Caleb. So he's just a wholehearted puppy. <laughs> oh my god. I haven't found anything about Miriam, so that might be a different color, but good. All right. Well, I have a small note here then that I was looking up in terms of commentary regarding this Moshe talking God down from destroying people, <laughs> which is that Moshe says to God, aren't you slow of anger and abounding in kindness? And there's a midrash about when Moshe first went up on Mount Sinai and God said, like, mm-hmm. I, am I am slow, slow to, to anger, anger and abounding in kindness. kindness. And Moshe said, but just for, like, the righteous people, right? And God was like, no, also for the wicked people. Yeah. And then when it comes to this section, Moshe's like, remember, God, you said you were slow to anger and abounding in kindness. And God was like, but maybe only for the righteous people. These people aren't being righteous. And Moshe's like, no, you said also for the wicked people. Even though these people are being wicked, you got to be consistent. (laughs) And God's like, yes, you are right. Okay. Good. Anyway, I just appreciate that Midrash has another person arguing with God (laughs) and doing so well. And also that the takeaway from that is all of the people have value, even the ones who are doing not good things. Yeah. One thing that I want to point out is that the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in kindness, comes from a bit pretty late in Shemot, where Moshe is coming down the mountain, and God goes before him and, like, talks itself up using these exact words. So it sounds like the Midrash is looking more into the, like, slow to anger and abounding in kindness for all people. Whereas the Torah text here is focusing more on forgiving iniquity, but also keeping track of it. Mm. Well, the Midrash thing that I just said, I think was referencing that bit back in Shemot where Mm -hmm. God said it to Moshe. The text knows that that's where it came up last time. Yeah. Thank you for that Midrash. It's a really nice aspect to add to the reading. Right? There's a lot (laughs) else going on. So like... (laughs) Okay, so then God's like, okay, okay, but none of those people are going to be able to get into the promised land. Mm -hmm. Their children are going to get into the promised land, and I got them out of Egypt, but they're not also going to get to leave the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Except for Caleb, 
who's special. So this is another reason why I think the Yehoshua bit was added later. Because they seem to forget about him. Several points here. Kalev is the only one mentioned. Yeah. We forget about Yehoshua. <laughs> so it might be that in the original, only one person was like, hey, no, it's going to be fine. Stop crying about it. Yeah. It seems to go back and forth on this one. Yeah. Oh, also, a question about that. Mm. What ancestral houses do Kalev and Yehoshua come from? Ah, well, we can find that out. It's in the list at the beginning. (laughs) Kalev is from Yehuda and Ephraim. Yeah, so these are the ones that we've talked about before as being the ancestral houses that exist later in history. Mm. Right? Well, Yehuda definitely is. I don't think that's (laughs) true for Ephraim. Okay. Yeah, that kingdom might have gotten wiped out. Yeah. Ephraim is special. It's one of Joseph's kids. Mm -hmm. Notably, not the inheritor, because that's Manasseh, but like someone who makes a totally different ancestral house. Mm. Do you remember the thing about Ephraim and Manasseh is that the older child should have Mm -hmm. got the blessing and instead they blessed the younger child? Yeah. Do you remember which is which? So we say them in the order of Ephraim and Manasseh. Is Manasseh the younger? I don't remember. That is why I asked you. That wasn't a trick question. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Manasseh was the first son. So Ephraim is the inheritor? Ephraim is the inheritor, even though it says here from the ancestral house of Yosef, namely the ancestral house of Manasseh. So I don't know what's up with that. Anyway, <laughs> from the inheritor, Ephraim is Yoshua. And then God sort of says it again, angrier, (laughs) your kids will get in, but you won't. And your carcasses shall drop in this wilderness (laughs) and you shall bear your punishment for 40 years because you were scouting for 40 days. I didn't double check, but I wonder if this is like a text thing. Like there's one tradition that has it as a less angry speech and one tradition that has it as a more angry speech. I mean, yeah, one has just Kalev and one has... Save Kalev and Yehoshua. Yeah. So, yeah, the angrier one might be the one that comes from the tradition that talks up Yehoshua as a successor to Moshe. Mm, That would make sense to me because he's a more military leader. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if you are familiar with, but the interpretation that I was kind of given growing up is that part of the reason they wandered for 40 years in the desert was so that... The people who were entering the promised land were not people who had ever been slaves, that you were building a new civilization with people Mm. who had always ever been free, and that they were better equipped to build something new. Yeah, the idea that none of us will see a communist society, it has to be the generations that grow up fundamentally respecting other people and helping each other out. I think it's a similar concept, yeah. How do you feel about that? Um, so I never heard like a really strong explanation. And that does sound familiar to me. So I like it. Okay. Not just because it's familiar, but because that tracks. Like Mm. there was a movie that I watched yesterday called The Girl with All the Gifts. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot about transitioning from an old world to a new world and like who gets brought along and what it looks like to be part of the new world. Mm -hmm. So that plus some communist theory plus the tradition related to this text all seem to agree that you can't enter the promised land if 
you were one of the people who left for the promised land. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit because we were talking about my family earlier in the show mm-hmm. of the ways that my brother and I interact with ideas of gender and sexuality being somewhat different than the way my parents do. Mm. And this is particularly notable and funny to me with my brother because like my parents and I are queer in different ways, but we are both queer. Mm-hmm. And my brother isn't, but there are ways in which both of us had to like learn. We didn't grow up with a lot of specific kinds of gender norms in our house. Mm. And we don't have necessarily the same types of associations about them that our parents might have grown up with or like that other types of people grew up with. Yeah. And consequently, we don't have always a great sense of like what was the normative thing to do. <laughs> I think I've told you a story of when my brother had a friend come out to him as trans. Mm-hmm. And the friend was like, I feel like you should have known. And my brother said, in retrospect, I get it. But all of the things that she did were things that I also did. And I wasn't a girl. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think growing up with fewer explicit expectations as to gendered presence made it easier well hmm, two directions okay one it made it easier for me to understand my femininity not so much in contrast to masculinity but like as its own thing Mm. but the other direction is it took me longer to come out because there was less friction between the gendered expectations of me and the way that i just existed Can you spin me another line of that one? I don't quite understand. Yeah. So like I was assigned male at birth and growing up, there wasn't stuff like you must play with trucks and do sport. Ah. There was some stuff about like makeup is for girls and like, I don't know, but I wasn't getting gender lessons explicitly from my parents Mm. and... Yeah, I don't know. Ways in which I would talk to people and ways in which I would hold myself and pick up interests. It wasn't in the rigid binary of American gender. Sure. It was like something kind of new. And if I have children, the expectations of gender that they grow up with are going to be something new again. Yeah, yeah. So it's a sort of similar thing of you get to create new things with new generations. Yeah. But like the two directions that I was talking about are because A, I'm autistic and B, I didn't grow up with explicit rules around gender. It was easier for me to be like, oh, okay, so this is how I'm conceiving of my gender now that I am actively thinking about it as an adult. Mm -hmm. But the other direction was... Much like David Nathan, ways in which I was atypical for a male presentation didn't bother me that much. Ah. Because I was just like, oh, that's not a thing that boys can't do. Yeah, sure. So it just took me, like, I came out to myself when I was 23 or 24 instead of, like, when I was 17 or something. Yeah. God bless the people who came out at 17, but I was also not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's straight at 17. Oh my God. Actually, it hasn't even been a whole generation. And the fact that there are so many people who are just like, yeah, I'm gay when they're 14 or 16 or 12 or younger. 
It's just really cool. Yeah. I mean, I teach eight-year-olds during the school mm-hmm. year, and it didn't come up a lot. We didn't talk about gender and sexuality all that often, but the kids know about queer people and have queer people in their family and sometimes yeah. have figured out stuff about their own gender or sexuality. Like, very impressive. Baruch Hashem. So, that was the queer part of our podcast. No, anyway, whatever. How about the rest of that part, Shana? It was related. Okay. Anyway, then the other 10 scouts who aren't Joshua or Caleb die. Of plague, to be clear. <laughs> they die of plague because they were spreading slander about the land and causing the people to be really upset. And then the people are really upset. And they say, well, I guess we're supposed to go into the land. Like, that's why they died, because they told us not to. <laughs> so we're going to go in right now. And Moshe is like, well, no, God has said, actually, you can't right now anymore. <laughs> it will not succeed. So don't do it, because other people will kill you by swords. And they go in anyway. Mm-hmm. And they have this note here, though the ark and the cloud that's been showing them the way didn't move. Mm-hmm. They marched off, and it says the people who are already living in the land, the Amalekites and the Canaanites, dealt them a shattering blow. As a child who is kind of bad at Simon Says, mm-hmm. I just want to express solidarity with the Israelite people, because they are all very bad at Simon Says. Really bad at following directions. <laughs> I do have a little bit of sympathy for the like, but... You told us to go in, and we were in trouble for not going in, and now, why are we in trouble for going? Mm-hmm. Which is fair. Which is fair. <laughs> and then God says to Moshe, like, here are the rules for how you'll do an offering for any number of reasons. When you enter the land, here's mm. how you do it. And then we get some more rules about that. Jazz, is this new information? No. Okay. I don't think so. We get a restatement of one law for the resident and the stranger. Yeah. And another thing of if you unwittingly fail to observe any one of the commandments, then there is a sacrifice. And I feel <laughs> like it's getting restated here because the people have transgressed. <laughs> and it's like a reminder that there is a policy for what you do in that case. Yeah. And it seems like this is more explicit about like, if the whole community did unweedingly, there's this specific offering. And if it was an individual, that one individual offers something. Mm-hmm. It sounds different from what we had before, but it might be the exact same phrase differently. Admittedly, the specifics of the sacrifices are not my strongest suit. They do make my eyes glaze over. But I think we've had stuff about if you err unwittingly before. Mm -hmm. This seems to me to be premised on the idea that most actions are unwitting. Also, if you do it very, very intentionally, that's different. But most of them seem to be unwitting. Because then they have this bit at the end of somebody who is gathering wood, presumably to start a fire. And they're like, what do we do with this person? We don't have a protocol for that. The answer appears to be put him to death. But yeah. Okay, so again, they're pelting him with stones. Yeah. Rather than pushing him off a cliff and dropping a stone on him. Are you Uh sure that this isn't just what stoning means? I look, I was reasonably certain. (laughs) Okay, hang on. Mishnaic Mm. formulation of stoning is surprising. Being pushed from a high place replaces the throwing of stones. Okay. And so there may have been an earlier thing that was throwing stones, but it gets replaced by being pushed and it changes the stones being thrown by the whole community as like public spectacle to a more solitary form of execution. Mm. Okay, so it's not less deadly, it's less public. Yeah. 
Okay. Which is what we've done with executions in the US too. We used to have very public hangings that people came to Mm -hmm. and they have moved to solitary electrocution or injection, you know, things that are done behind walls. Yeah. Not necessarily more humane. No, less public. So what's up in the last paragraph, Jess? So we'd had all this stuff about accidental sins and what you do about them. And in the last bit, they just really want to make sure that you can avoid doing things wrong accidentally, if at all possible. And so God says to Moshe to tell everybody to have little fringes on the corners of their garments forever. A little bit of blue and have it serve as a reminder to observe all the commandments and be holy. I am the eternal God God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Be your God. I, the eternal, am your God. This is the formulation when you really want to strongly emphasize it. (laughs) And these are tzitzit that people still wear today. Yeah. It's just really nice having fringes hanging out on your garments. Yeah. And we had in building other parts of the Mishkan this word trelet, And trelet is the type of blue that you'd use for the tzitzit. And so sometimes you see tzitzit now and they're white. And it's because they lost that particular blue. And they were like, we don't know which particular blue it was. So we're not going to do it the wrong blue. And so they have fringes that are white. Yeah, kind of. I feel like how we will often write the Lord in translations when it's not Adonai, but they rewrote it so that it would be. Right. And then... For this, some people do use blue, and it's because they believe that we have rediscovered the particular blue that is Tchalet. It's a very nice blue. It's a very nice blue. Comes from a particular (laughs) snail, I think. Oh, fun. Anyway, I really like it that they're just like, here are ways that you might accidentally do wrong things or ways that the people gave into their fear and that prevented them from being able to create their new better society Mm -hmm. so here you just wear your tzitzit and then you will be more likely to remember to do better it's sort of the same idea that later gets extended to a kippa in a similar way of it'll be a constant physical reminder Mm -hmm. so it's a nice thing yeah i don't know if i've mentioned it on the podcast before but the wearing of kippot Reminds me of the verse, you hem me in before and behind, I feel your hand on me. Because there's just this physical reminder on a very like personal part of your body that you are before God. That's beautiful. Fitting that we started with a psalm and close out with a psalm. Um, I would like to clarify one thing. Mm-hmm. Is the cord of blue like running Along the length of the garment? No. Or is it interwoven with the fringe? It's interwoven with part of the fringe. Okay. In modern day, the way you tie it has significance. Mm-hmm. There's like these different threads and they're all tied. And then there's like a dangling bit that's not tied. Okay. And Ashkenazi and Sephardi and Yemeni Jews all have like different patterns to the type of knots and tying around things that they have. And possibly other people as well. Those are just like the ones that I'm familiar with. Okay. And like the numbers have different significance. It's flagging for ethnic groups. Kinda. You leave your fringes hanging out of your back pocket. Yeah. You are allowed to wear tzitzi inside of your clothes also, if like you want to remember, but you don't want other people to see them. Yeah. Like godly special secret underwear. (laughs) Lulav, are you ready for rating God's writing? What is that, Jazz? The segment in which we take two scales that we have just made up 
or prepared unfairly before the episode <laughs> and ask each other to rate the Parsha based on them. Okay. I think I am ready for that. Jazz, if you were to commemorate this Parsha with the fringes of your garments, how many tassels would there be in a fringe? I don't understand this question. When you wear tzitzit, there are four tzitzit. Oh, okay. You wear one on each corner. Okay. I thought that there were like more dangly bits to the fringe. There are only four? Well, uh, you have one tassel on each corner, and then each one is made up of six strings, maybe, Uh per tassel, something like that. So my clarifying question was, are you talking about how many tassels am I rating it out of four tassels, or how many string per tassel? What what was the question? Okay, yeah. So out of 24 strings that make the fringes of your garment for remembering this Parsha, how many strings do you need to use? Ooh, I'm gonna give it 20, okay. which is all of the white ones, but no blue ones. Oh. There's a lot of beautiful stuff in this Parsha, and I really liked it, but I did struggle with it at some of the points as well. Mm-hmm. Lulav. Yes, Jazz. Out of 12 scouts, how many scouts would you rate this Parsha? Ooh, okay, hold on. I would say trustworthy, loyal, Helpful, not friendly, nor courteous, nor kind, obedient, but not cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and occasionally reverent. So I think I would name this, how many did I skip? It's something like 8.5 scouts out of 12. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, you did compare them to redacted scouts in the beginning. (laughs) I, yeah, sure. (laughs) Fine. Jazz, can you take us to the close? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Kosher Queers. If you like what you've heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash kosherqueers, which will give you bonus content and help us keep making this for you. You can also follow us on Twitter at kosherqueers or like us on Facebook at kosherqueers or email us your questions, comments, and concerns at kosherqueers at gmail.com. And please spread the word about our podcast. Our artwork is by the talented Lior Gross. Our music is by the fabulous band Brivola, whose work you can find on Bandcamp. Go by their album. They're great. Our sound production this week is done by my lovely co-host, Lulav Arnau, whose words of Torah are like silver and gold. Whee! <laughs> on my honor, I will do my duty to edit this episode. Oh my god. Our transcript team of jazz, Ruben... Dico and Chesed brings you full transcripts of every episode. You can find a link to those in the episode descriptions on Buzzsprout. I'm Jazz Twersky, and you can find me at WordNerdKnitter on Twitter. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Ohlone people. I'm Lila Varno, and you can find me at SpaceTruck6 on Twitter. Or yell at me at PalmLiker. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Wapekute and Anishinaabek. Have a lovely queer Jewish day. This week's gender is a fortuitously late and leisurely recording. This week's pronouns are Lee, Lem, and Lems.